All right, so we are continuing our series uh, called Gospel Human Flourishing. Uh, we've been taking this theme out of Jeremiah 29, verse 7, and the theme is, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And so the idea, the concept is that uh, as the people of God and Israel were taken from their homeland and, and exiled into this new community, they were called to seek that, uh, the, the betterment, the flourishment of that community. And likewise, we have been, uh, we are exiles here in this life looking forward to kingdom come, but that doesn't mean that we don't seek the welfare of where we uh, engage and where we live. And so we've been talking about how the gospel motivates us to seek human flourishing here and now. And so over the last several weeks, we've looked at work. We've looked um, at how we're called to engage the world and cultivate and keep through work. We talked uh, three weeks on justice. What is the, the biblical reality of justice from, um, from the Old Testament perspective, from uh, Jesus' perspective, from the early church and how they fed on each other? Uh, we talked uh, last week about lament how uh, we are called to lament, and that leads us to lament with those who are dealing with pain and sorrow. And today, I want to contrast um, two different narratives, uh, the narrative of gospel human flourishing and then the narrative of secular human flourishing. And I want to begin here. Mashed. You guys ever been to Mashed, the website? Sweet. Um, so Mashed is a food website with, with news about food and, and instructions on how to make really great meals, okay? And so on this website, I came across an article called uh, Foods That Look Amazing But Actually Taste Terrible. I don't know if you have come across that article just yet, but there, there are a few that made the cut that I want to present to you. The, the durian, uh, you're probably familiar with the durian. There it is right there. I don't know if it looks amazing, but it, it could potentially look a little bit like a pineapple, and so you can kind of assume that it's going to be sweet and filled with wonderful uh, uh, citrusy taste, but man, you open that thing up, and it smells like rotting human flesh. It does. It's actually what the article said. Uh, it went all along to say it smells like sewage uh, to the point that these are banned on Singapore's transit system. Okay, so when you look at that from afar, you're not going to think it's going to taste or smell like it does, but that's the case. Dragon fruit um, would be the next one, that, that pink one. Uh, man, that looks really good potentially for you. If you look at that, it's like, man, that could look really good. Maybe coconutty, uh, maybe with a little underbirth of, of some, uh, I don't know, uh, poppy seed kind of vibe. And so, but these are one of the biggest letdowns on the planet, okay? So these are, they have the Wesley, I was talking to him about this uh, the other day, and he was saying it, it's like it's like eating a kiwi without any of the flavor of the kiwi. And so it's, it's, it's quite gross. Dragon fruit looks amazing. You get into that thing. It's no, no bueno. Uh, the next would be the donut burger. Um, it, it made the cut. Um, I don't get why we would do this, um, but people do. Maybe you do. Uh, this did. It made the cut. It made me chuckle. Uh, created by Americans, obviously. How many calories can we get in one meal? Um, and so donuts, yes, they're delicious. Uh, burgers, yes, are delicious. But um, why would we do this? I, I don't know. And then I would say you might disagree with me, but licorice uh, for sure makes the cut. You have this, this idea of licorice, and then you, you look at it. It doesn't look that great, but maybe it could look good for you, and then you put it in your mouth, and it tastes like licorice. And that's why nobody but maybe one or two of you enjoy it. And so we have this, this reality of things that look really good on the surface, but once you put it in your mouth, once you smell it, it's very different than what you saw or thought it would be. And so likewise, there are two primary baseline views of human flourishing. 
And yes, this gets complicated as we kind of flesh this out in more detail. But there's a, there's a version of secular human flourishing that on the surface looks legit. It looks quality. It looks like the dragon fruit. But as you get into it, you find that it's not what you thought it would be. Actually, it's detrimental to society. But then you have a version of gospel human flourishing that if the church takes seriously, we have the opportunity to see spectacular, powerful things take place in our society. As followers of Jesus, we are called to submit ourselves to a gospel view of human flourishing. And I want to splice up the two of these realities. First, I want to look at secular the secular view of human flourishing. Again, Hebrew, uh, not Hebrews, Genesis 11. Why I said Hebrews? We're not in Hebrews at all this morning, but just came out of my mouth. So he uh, said it again. Genesis 11. It's going to be an interesting morning. Genesis, I told Alex, I said, I, I think I drank too much coffee this morning. Um, so Genesis 11, we find a picture of the antithesis of gospel human flourishing. It's building a kingdom without God. That's the point of secular human flourishing. I want to read these first nine verses to us this morning. It says this. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they uh, propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed from them there over the um, face of all the earth and they left off uh, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because their Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. So they came together with a goal, and it appears like things were going well. It appears on the surface. If you look kind of at face value in these first few verses, it looks like they've reached a state of utopia. Maybe a state of nirvana for you early 90s folks. You like really like that one. Uh, Maybe a state of uh, progress. It seems like they've kind of gotten to that, that moment, that time of progress, arrival, it appears. The language used here multiple times is let us. This, this, this phrase, let's, let's make brick, that phrase is used uh, consistently through Moses' Pentateuch and, and Genesis 1. Uh, let us create man uh, and woman in our image. We see it here. Let us do this. We see it in the Exodus story. Again, this theme of, of Pharaoh coming together and on the backs of the Hebrew people, let us build bricks and therefore make buildings and using those people to build This theme is used on the regular. This is let us make bricks. It's using technology of of brick to to reach up to the gods. It's this this place of pride. 
to an ingenuity, trying to leverage our own resources, taking from God what only is his and using those resources to leverage ourselves and oftentimes oppressing other people. See, our autonomy, apart from God, results in a world of tragedy and death, suppression and oppression. See, the Bible isn't anti-progress. The Bible isn't anti cultivating. We've actually been talking on the regular in this series that we actually are called to cultivate, keep, make better. The biblical call is to transform this earth into the garden city that it's moving towards. That's what our call is. But the issue here has everything to do with the motivation. It's the motivation that's happening here. It's we want to ascend to heaven and we want to become like God. The NIV says that they want to reach to the heavens. This is anti-Eden. This is the opposite of the design that God creating, seeking to become God uh, like void of the creator and the cosmic design. They're wanting to have everything that God created void of the backbone of the one who created all things. It's this motivation. We see it tapped into a few verses before in Genesis 10, 9, and 10. I'll read them to you. We kind of see the foundation of Babel. Uh, in, in verse 9 of chapter 10, it says this. Uh, speaking of Nimrod, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. So we have this dude, Nimrod, who is the founder, maybe the mayor of Babel. And the name Nimrod means we will rebel. And so the very foundation of Babylon, the very foundation of this tower that they're wanting to build is this desire to rebel against God and his creation. We see this, this thread of Babel and Babylon, this great wicked city throughout all of the scriptures. And this is the Lord came down. The Lord, he came down. There's two ways to read this, that his attention was here and it turns to here and he came down, he kind of focused in on them, and you can see it that way, that's fine. Another way is that uh, from his throne, he came down to this puny city. It's as if he has to condescend and enter into this great, mighty tower. It's this sarcastic way of saying that God on his throne, the creator, mighty one of all, the omnipotent one, he comes down to this little anthill and kind of enters into their world. And we find this is the height of human rebellion. This tower called Babel. The tower protected these people like the fig leaves protected Adam and Eve. See, Adam and Eve rebelled personally against God, and they, they took fig leaves to hide, to run from God, to protect themselves from their shame and to enter into a new way of life void of God. And in the same way that corporately these people build this tower to remove God from their lives and to enter into this new chapter they wanted as human beings. So the question is, as you read this on face value, you could maybe ask the question, is God being cruel here? Is he being cruel that he would kind of buck against this desire to, to cultivate and keep what seems to be happening here? It appeared like they were moving the ball forward. It appeared like progress was happening. It appeared like they were engaging order. Isn't God a God of order? Why would he step in in this way? But again, this is decreation. It's trying to pull back uh, creation and to recreate it void of God and enter it in just with humans apart from God. It's the antithesis of the design. See, we as humans can't take God's design and adjust it to our own liking. 
We're unable to take God's creation and reform it into our own pattern of living, void of God the creator. See, him coming down isn't him being cruel, it's him being merciful. Because he knew going down this path what it would mean for humanity. See, when God is not central, we will always oppress. I didn't say when religion isn't central because that is just as damaging as anything else. It's not when religion is central, it's when God and his gospel are central. When those things are not happening, we find that oppression continually takes place. Babel wanted unity on their own terms and the results will never lead to human flourishing. The creator designed this world with our need for him and our DNA. And we can't avoid it. So the secular schema of human flourishing is a facade just like the dragon fruit. Becoming like God, seeking to reorder his good design on our terms. And so in the West, we, we can see this. There's many examples that we can use, but one would be relevant for us. We're taught that our freedom is the highest form of human flourishing. If we can attain freedom, and however we define that, if we can attain freedom, if we can build this tower called freedom, then we will find ultimate peace here and now. We seek to build a tower in the name of freedom, and it plays out both with conservatives and it plays out with progressives. And so for human flourishing with conservatives, they think that individual rights or having free markets unleashed from government control and restraints is what leads to flourishment. And progressives would say uh, something different, that human flourishing for progressives would be deconstructing all oppression and structures, removing all norms of family, sexuality, gender, culture, in which people find place and meaning. But both the contemporary left and the contemporary right seek to pursue personal freedom as the solution to the human problem. If we just get freedom, if we just build this tower called freedom, then we will experience human flourishing. It's just like the dragon fruit. It's a dead end. Friends, relative to the world, we are drowning in freedom in the West. We are drowning in freedom, yet yearning for meaning. And why is that the case? Why is it the case that we are drowning in freedom in the West, yet we find a void of meaning and purpose within our lives? It's because we've tried to build a tower in the name of freedom, void of God as the centerpiece of it all. Tempted to build a tower without God as the centerpiece. And as followers of Jesus, we have to be, uh, we have to be culturally aware enough to know where uh, the definition of human flourishing uh, is beginning to deviate us away from the gospel. It is in God that we find our purpose and our meaning, and we will not find it in freedom. We will not find it in politics. We will not find it in our social agendas. We will not find it in anything else if it's not God at the baseline. See, it's our identity as his children that motivate us. Not driven by our tribe or agenda, but in his grace-filled gospel that compels us to seek to allow our privilege to be set aside so that we can serve and love one another. See, secularism provides us with a veneer of truth without the substance. The appearance is far different than its taste. And so we have a secular view of human flourishing. Building a tower void of God at the center, using something that God's created as an end to build so that we can seek human flourishing without God and his gospel at the core. The, the other half of this would be a gospel view of human flourishing. It's interesting that Moses, again, the writer of the Pentateuch, the writer of Genesis, he, he kind of uh, uh, 
juxtaposes Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel and the call of Abraham in Genesis 12. And I'd love to read a few verses to you in Genesis 12. It says this, again, right after this story of the Tower of Babel. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the polarized option. The first option is to use your power, use your strength to oppress others. And the other version, the gospel version, is to allow your privilege and your blessing to be set aside so that you can bless others. Instead of building a tower for our name and to build our power and wealth, I will give you a great name so that you can bless others, so that you can bless other nations. See, your wealth, your privilege, your power isn't an end in itself, but a means to bless others. This is how the gospel defines human flourishing. This is how Christians are designed to be known. This is how the early church was designed to be known as a generous people who become a conduit to serve and care for others, using our blessings to engage our neighbor. It is God and his gospel that reminds us that he cares about this world so much that he sent his son to redeem it. And now we are deputized as followers of Jesus to bring about his kingdom in thousands of different ways in our own lives here and now. Not to hoard, but to be a conduit to gospel human, human flourishing. In gospel human flourishing, God becomes our motivation. And we're willing to set aside anything so that we can surrender ourselves to God and allow him to be the one who blesses others. Our only response is to walk humbly before God. That's the Micah 6.8 declaration that he has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love mercy and walk humbly with your God. To gospel human flourishing at the baseline. You can't just say that that, that text is to do justice and to love mercy. The backbone of that is to walk humbly before your God. And when you truly walk humbly before your God, you are able to do justice and to love mercy. See, the gospel compels us to see humanity flourish. And I want to say that there are three ways that the gospel, at least three ways that the gospel compels us to engage human flourishing. And I'll lay them out to you. The first would be the Imago Dei. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we read this declaration that God gives about the, the uniqueness of humanity that's different than anything else in creation. It says this. Then God said, this is the sixth day. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So we believe with the gospel that it reminds us and, and tells us that humanity of all shapes and colors and races and ethnicities resemble, represent, and reflect God. So we believe that. We believe that as followers of Jesus, that all people represent God in the Imago Dei. C.S. Lewis said it like this. There are no ordinary people. 
You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, they are, they are mortal. They are mortal. And their life is to our, ours as the life of a gnat. Sorry, I kind of wrote this down a little too fast. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. He's saying that, that um, humanity is unlike everything else in the created order. So imagine if a foreigner from Sri Lanka chose to come to Mount Vernon. Mount Vernon is the place where George Washington once lived. And this Sri Lankan knows nothing about American history. And then they come and they see this plantation, which is uh, a smaller plantation compared to others in Virginia. And they begin to question, why is there such value and respect and guards and people that are armed? And why are, why are there such protection around this one plantation? What makes this one place in Mount Vernon so unique and powerful and honorable and special and, and worthy? What makes this Mount Vernon so worthy of all of its honor and respect? And it's because it's George Washington's house. George Washington is the father of our nation. And so because we honor the owner, we therefore honor the house. Because we honor George Washington, we therefore honor this place. Likewise, we treasure every human because they reflect the creator. Every human, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of color, regardless of disability, every human being is immensely valuable, made in the image of God. And we believe that as followers of Jesus. Tim Keller says it like this, the image of God carries with it the right to not be mistreated or harmed. All human beings have this right, this worth, according to the Bible. Regardless of their record or character, all human beings have an irreducible glory. See, this is a radical notion. Secular human flourishing cannot declare this. This is a radical notion that cannot carry the same weight in the secular world. The natural intuition is survival of the fittest. The natural intuition is at the heart level, we are all barbarians. And we are all seeking to protect our own tribe, our own people, our own nation at the expense of others. Aristotle said that some people were born to be slaves. It's a natural conclusion in secular human flourishing. When you drill into secularism, you find this. There's a historian named Carl Becker, and he says, we are a little more than a chance deposit on the surface of a world, carelessly thrown up between two ice ages by the same forces that rust iron and ripen corn. That's the result of secular human flourishing. Stephen Hawking said it like this, the human race is just a chemical scum on a moderate-sized planet. There's no, this is the, if you squeeze out secular human flourishing enough, there's no baseline of creator. There's no baseline of, of dignity and design. And, and that's why on the surface it can look one way, but in, at the end it's just about oppressing one group of people or another group of people. See, secular human flourishing at its core without God will deviate down an unhelpful path. It's like looking at dragon fruit and saying on the surface it looks good and then you take a bite and you're like, dang, that's not what I thought it would be. In the same way, gospel human flourishing, it reminds us of the creator and the unique worth of all people. So as we look at gospel human flourishing, we have to compare and contrast these two realities, these two narratives uh, that we hear, and we oftentimes, more often than not, that's why we gather every Sunday morning to remember the narrative that we're a part of, because throughout the rest of the week, we hear this secular narrative more oftentimes than not. 
I would make the case that the heart of the civil rights movement was the image of God, the Imago Dei. Martin Luther King said it like this. You see, the founding fathers were really influenced by the Bible. The whole concept of the Imago Dei, as it is expressed in Latin, the image of God, is the idea that all men have something within them that God injected. Not that they, were, they have substantial unity with God, but that every man has a capacity to have fellowship with God. And this gives him a uniqueness. It gives him worth. It gives him dignity. And we must never forget this as a nation. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a bass black is significant on God's keyboard precisely because every man is made in the image of God. One day we will learn that. This is why we must fight segregation with all of our nonviolent might. See, the heart was we believe that we are made equal in the image of God. And this is what the gospel communicates to us, that we are to receive the grace and the gifts of God and to, in return, give it, to even uh, leverage our privilege, to, sorry, maybe said different, to put aside our privilege to see others flourish. The gospel compels us to carry the glory of our neighbor, to care for the glory of our neighbor made in the image of God. And so we see the first motivation of gospel human flourishing is the Imago Dei. So the second are short, so we're going to breeze through the next two. The second is stewardship. Stewardship. And it says, we have authority over the world and the resources, but we are not its owner. In the image of God, recognizing that God is our creator, we have been given resources, we have been given things in our lives, but those aren't things for us to hoard. Those are things for us to steward and to use to help others. In Psalm 24, verse 1, it says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in it. So God owns everything. But he's given us the responsibility to steward the things we have to make this world better. Not to exploit, not to uh, climb the ladder and step on others, but to use our resources to help others. The gospel reminds us of our responsibility. Our task is to manage what God has given to us in a way that pleases the owner. So in the, uh, in the gospel human flourishing, we believe that God exists, and we believe that he created, and we believe that he's given us resources, and we are called to uh, use those resources to help and serve and care for others. God is central. We have the temptation to think that our time and our money is a result of our own success, and so we now hoard our time and our money because we think that it's ours, but it's not. We're called to steward those things to help and care for others. An Old Testament scholar, Bruce Waltke, concluded that, uh, and I'm going to pick it up mid-sentence, that the, the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to the advantage of the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. And at the end of the day, this is the call of a follower of Jesus. Gospel human flourishing compels us to disadvantage ourselves so that we can serve and care for others. This is what gospel human flourishing looks like. And so we see that gospel human flourishing, it is a, the motivation of the Imago Dei, motivation of understanding proper stewardship, and then thirstly, understanding grace. As I've done for you, you do for others. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but grace, uh, briefly defined, is getting dessert when you uh, didn't eat your dinner. 
right? That's grace on a base level. We understand that. Parents, you understand that, okay? And so grace is, man, I didn't deserve that, but God graciously gave it to me anyways. Grace isn't just something we receive, but it's something we give because we received it. Like God said to Abram, just, uh, I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing, blessed to be a blessing. The early church did this. The early church didn't need Rome to lean on to serve the poor. They were so generous that they didn't need Rome. And the church is called to allow the motivation of grace, not just to get you into heaven, but to shape and transform your heart in such a way to say, how can I give in a way that God has so graciously given to me? So we are fed a version of secular human flourishing that on the surface looks okay, but it's actually, actually detrimental to society. The gospel, and, uh, on the other hand, is uh, to seek human flourishing with the motivation of the Imago Dei, the motivation of stewardship and grace. I want to end with this. I believe that we are in a cultural moment in the church. I believe that we, coming out of the pandemic, coming out of the social pressures that we've experienced over these last couple of years, I believe that we are at a crossroads as the big C church in America. To be known as a people who follow politics, to be known as a people who have our allegiances and agendas that we seek to prioritize above everything else, or to be a people who are known as people who follow Jesus. I believe that we're at a crossroads for the, for the gospel to actually do something in us that leads us to be generous. To so do something in us that leads us to truly care for others that are different than us. See, this isn't just, um, this, is, this is a moment that we can step into, but I believe it's also our, our inheritance. That we have an opportunity to allow the blessings of God to, to be conduits and lead us to bless others. Friends, we can't settle for the facade of secular human flourishing. You were made to be a part of God's story. You were made to enter into this space and time and actually be different in the world. Not just be a more conservative or more progressive view of secularism, but to allow the gospel to make you distinct. To allow the gospel to lead you to say, man, I have this, but I want to give it. I've been given this, but I want to, I want to share it. I want to allow the grace of God to not just do something for me individually so I can get into heaven, but actually shape me here and now to love my neighbor and to care for others. That's where we become light, and that's where we become salt. And I believe that we're in this cultural moment, this opportunity where it's tense and dark and confusing, the, the pressures around faith and following Jesus and being canceled and all of this stuff. We have an opportunity to be distinct and to enter into this world and say, no, the gospel is compelling me by grace to love my neighbor. I know the end of the story. I know Babel and Babylon is going to end one day. I know the dragon's going to be slayed one day, and I'm going to enter in with, with ferociousness to lay down my life for my neighbor, to care for those that are different than me. I believe that's the moment that we have and that we're invited into by the grace of our Lord Jesus. Amen. So I want to I end, and I want to pray for us. I don't want to settle, friends. I don't want to settle for just this puny, hollow, lifeless message. I want to, I want to, I want to enter into the, the, the story that we've been invited into. The grace of Jesus has been extended to us. He, is, he has done well more than we can ever ask or think. 
He's offered us these opportunities to love our neighbor and to to care for the vulnerable and to sacrifice our lives, to to lift people up. This is what the gospel invites us into. I want to pray that God would do that in our hearts. Man, motivation from this platform will last like 30 seconds. But man, the spirit at work will change your life. And I want to pray that God would do that in our midst. I want to pray that God would do that in our hearts, that we would be known as a people that are distinct. We'd be known as a people who freely give of ourselves and our finances and our time and our energy. And I know that some of you are a lot young mamas and daddies, and I know that's tricky. For we got to navigate through what that looks like, and there's grace for that in seasons of life. But as the narrative of our lives would be generous. The narratives of our lives would be the grace of Jesus compelling us to do crazy things because he did crazy things for us. And so I want to pray towards that end for our hearts. And so we did this uh, last week. Andrew led us in this last week. I, I want to just in the groups that you came with, because of COVID, this is what we got to do. Um, but in the groups that you came with, I just want to pray, God, would you awaken something afresh in our lives? Would you uh, let your kingdom come truly in our lives? Let's, let's pray towards this end as, as Trevor comes up and, uh, and we'll, we'll transition into communion. Sound good? So you can pray out loud with your group, believing that God actually hears your prayer, and, and then we're going to transition into communion together. Let's pray. bless you. Lord, I ask that you would start with us. I'm going to point the finger and say, ah, that church isn't doing this or that. Lord, would you start with us in our lives and my life? I pray that you would stir a humility in me, a care in me because of the gospel to, to motivate me and to motivate my family and to motivate this community to care and to love and to give of ourselves. The gospel be put on display this community. We ask for your kingdom to come and your will to be done. Would you move? Would you save? Would you transform? Would you heal? Would you reconcile? Would you breathe life into this community, God? In Jesus' name, amen. So what we do is we close our gatherings each week is we have these communion elements um, that are in the aisles. You can grab, you can grab one and we're going to end by taking communion together.
Every week we take this little wafer and this sour Welch's juice, not because it's anything good, right? We take it as a declaration, as a as the loudest message I want you to hear as you enter in or end your week, how you view Sunday, I'm not sure. But to remember that God, the creator, the sovereign of all, he entered into our lives and broke his body for you. That he shed his blood for your forgiveness. And you, if you trust in him, are clean. The best of you, the worst of you is placed on you and now the statement over your life is that you are loved and that we declare this week in and week out, the most beautiful message the world has ever known. We partake together. Friends, the body of Jesus broken for you, the blood of Jesus shed for you. Let's partake together.